So as we begin today, I need to address uh, two fashion faux pas for which I am guilty today and for which I make apology. The original, the first, is that uh, I'm wearing the same tie as last Sabbath. That may not be what you originally noticed, but that is in fact true. This is the same tie. This is again uh, a product of the dislocation of possession in which we find ourselves living that I only brought one tie with me on this trip. So here it is again. Uh, the second, maybe you also noticed, I'm not nearly this cool as these red shoes would imply. And if you ever catch me looking hip or in style, understand that either Alicia dressed me or it was purely accidental. But what happened was I left my shoes that were somewhat more appropriate for the setting at my sister's house in Leadville. And I had a couple options. I had boots. Gable's boots were an option, but uh, we were concerned I might get a little too hot walking around. And the other option was a pair of blue shoes, not dissimilar to these, but we thought since we've already messed up, let's go big. So, so these are red vans. I understand that makes me cool. So I'm glad to have those today. Thank you, Gable, for having style and sharing your style with me. Hopefully that won't be distracting the whole time, but uh, that's why I'm wearing these. Anyway, all right. Uh, second item is a, a scheduling item, just to give you a little idea of uh, what to expect in the weeks ahead. We did some work this week. Jay helped me connect with Pastor Al, who has been uh, interim and speaker at times. And uh, so we laid out a tentative plan for the rest of this month. Uh, since I was going to be in town this Sabbath as well, we worked it out that I could speak again this week. Then I'll be gone the next two Sabbaths, and Pastor Al will be back, and he will speak those two weeks. Uh, and during that time, uh, Alicia and I will drive back to Florida and attend to some things there. And then we're still detailing out the plan, but at some point after that, then I will likely come back out. Alicia will probably stay there for a little bit, but we haven't figured that out for sure. But I will come back out and, uh, and be around uh, for at least, at this point, the plan is the first two Sabbaths of February. So that's the, the working plan for now. And we'll see, you know how it is, man makes his plans, right? But uh, the Lord directs his steps. So we will see how that goes. Uh, but we're trying to figure out the best way to, to be here and make all the pieces work out. So pleased that we can be here today and uh, excited to open God's word with you. So uh, I'm going to pray in just a second here. Let's let everyone get in here. And then we can pray together. All right. Very good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day, for this chance to gather here, for this place. We thank you for your word. Lord, on this, uh, on this weekend when uh, we remember and commemorate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a... Uh, a clergyman, but one who, who so effectively spoke to what was ailing the culture of his day. 
I pray, Lord, that we can be the same sort of voices in our own that can bring about great good for your kingdom. But now, Lord, as we look at your word today, speak to us through it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I talked to you last Sabbath from uh, John chapter 3, and we took a little bit out of John chapter 1, so I thought, well, let's keep going with John here. Let's go to chapter 4, and uh, let's take a look at the story that takes place in John chapter 4. So we're going to spend most of our early time here in John chapter 4, and it begins like this, verse 1, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So that's kind of an interesting little uh, transitional paragraph there. So what we find out from that paragraph is that uh, we know that John the Baptist had gone out and he was was baptizing um, a baptism of, of confession and repentance. And people were coming out to him and being baptized. But now that Jesus was going... He was baptizing. He had embraced that symbol that John was using, and Jesus was baptizing, although then there's an interesting little caveat that's included there. It says, although it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Why do you think that was included? Why do you think that little statement's in there? I have a speculation on it. There isn't anything in the Scripture itself that would tell you exactly why it's there, but my speculation on that little minor point is because of human nature. And here's what I mean by that. If you had been baptized by Peter, that would be pretty impressive. Congratulations, that's good. But if I got baptized by Jesus, imagine how much more important my baptism was than yours, right? Isn't that how we are as humans? Isn't that unfortunate, how we do that kind of thing? And I think Jesus knew that, and he knew that from the beginning, and he knew that I don't dare do this, or the people I baptize are going to kind of try to lord it over the others. You actually see another story of this take place later on in the church in Corinth, where there is argument about who you were baptized by, and I was baptized by this one, or I was baptized by that one, and so forth, and arguing about the pedigree and the context. We get into those traps, don't we? So Jesus is baptizing, or at least the disciples are baptizing. And it starts to be known that he's baptizing more, and there starts to be pressure from the Pharisees on Jesus. So he leaves Judea, and he heads back to Galilee. Galilee is where a lot of his ministry takes place. There's a lot more danger for him in Judea. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. Now this is an interesting, uh, an interesting note as well. Because you see, Judea is, is in the south here, and then Galilee's up here, and in between is Samaria. You don't necessarily have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee, because there were some who used to intentionally cross the river and go up the other side just so they didn't have to go through Samaria. That's how much they disliked being around the Samaritans. But Jesus is apparently taking a more direct route, so now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. These details here seem somewhat irrelevant until you really get into this story. It's actually very fascinating what's happening here. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So Jesus and the disciples, they're headed north. Jesus is tired. He sits down by the well, and they head into town to get some food. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? All right, now I want to pause right there for a second. Because if you don't know the background here, you will not understand what's interesting about this, uh, some of the detail in this interaction that Jesus is having with this woman. First of all, it's already a, a little bit of a strange scenario in that here is a man, speak, a Jewish man speaking with a woman he does not know. So we're already a little bit on the dangerous impropriety ground. Secondly, the fact that she is a Samaritan woman and he is speaking to her. So she's a little bit shocked that he would say anything at all and even more shocked at the notion that he would actually drink from something that she had touched. Because to do that would be not okay. And so she responds to him, how are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who was talking to you, you'd ask me for a drink and I'd give you living water. All right, so Jesus now is branching off into a, a spiritual lesson but it's starting in the context of the reality of a physical need. And the reality of that physical need is we all get thirsty. We all have to go to a well or whatever it is. Luckily for most of us in our house, it's a, it's a faucet and you turn it on and it's not that hard. But that's not the case even to this day for a lot of people in the world. To get that daily water need supply takes work. And so he starts from the standpoint of this need... And then he kind of hints that there may be something more. But she's still in this zone. So she says in verse 11, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? And now it's very interesting what she does next. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now why is that so interesting? Well, first of all, it's Jacob's well. So that's the context. But the second reason this is so interesting is because the Samaritans claimed lineage from Jacob. They claimed to be the offspring of the sons of Joseph. They claimed to primarily be Ephraimites and Manassehites, with some Levites in their group. So they claimed Israelite heritage. But the Jews did not want to grant them that. They did not want them included in Israel. And why was that? In fact, the name the Jews had for the Samaritans was they were Kuthites. 
And what that term meant was they were from the town of Kutha, which is in modern-day Iraq. At the time, would have been in Babylon. Now, why in the world would they call them that? Well, if you go to 2 Kings, you'll find a story in 2 Kings that takes place after the Assyrians have conquered the northern tribes of Israel. You'll remember that Israel divided into Judah and the northern tribes. And there were kings in the north, and there were kings in Judah. And, and the Assyrians came from the east and destroyed the northern kingdom. And Scripture says that the king who destroyed them, the Assyrian king, took many of the Israelites away into captivity and then brought people from other parts of the realm back to Samaria and moved them into that region. And one of the cities listed on that list of places they were brought from is the city of Kutha. So to the Jews, the Samaritans were the mixed breed people who were brought into that region when the Israelites were destroyed. But the Samaritans said, no, we trace our lineage back to Jacob. Now, this has been an argument that has gone on for century after century after century after century right down to our day. And recently, with all the advances in, in uh, genetics and genealogy and DNA testing, they did some testing on Samaritans. And you know what the fascinating thing they discovered is? What they found out is they're both right. You see, it goes like this. The, the DNA that you can trace to the Y chromosome, the male chromosome, traces back to the lineage of Jacob by means of Joseph through Ephraim and Manasseh. So sure enough, what they were arguing is true. However, the mitochondrial DNA research that, that applies to the women's line mostly traces back to the region of Babylon and Mesopotamia, which is where Kutha is. So isn't it interesting? They were both right. It seems that there were these, these people brought in from this other land and they intermarried, and down the line what was left was a people who were part of the line of Israel and part of the line of Babylon, the Samaritans. So when she says, our father Jacob, she's reaching back to that element that connects them both. And she even references, uh, gave us this well and drank from it his, as himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. So she's initiating the discussion in the context of the core disagreement between Samaritans and Jews. But now watch what happens. Jesus doesn't go down that road. He doesn't take the bait. And this is a lesson for us right now, isn't it? All those people you have those conversations with, they keep baiting you to jump in there. Keep, come on, get in on the fight. Get in on the fight. Get in on the fight. How important to us right now is the fight between Jews and Samaritans? It's not really important, is it? We don't spend any time at all worried about that, do we? Ten years from now, 20 years from now, how important are the fights we're in going to be it's very likely they won't be. Now, that doesn't mean we don't stand for right. That doesn't mean we don't try to do the right thing. Dr. King is an example of doing the right thing at the right time, and it changes the reality as we go forward. We need to do that. 
But we also need to not always be so sure that what we think is such a big deal really is the biggest deal. It's that humility piece. And Jesus isn't getting drawn into this. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them, now catch this phrase, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's a beautiful concept, isn't it? To think that you would have inside of you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You've been to a spring before, right? You stood by a spring. Where we've been living in Florida is very close to a natural spring that comes up out of the ground called Wakiva Springs. It's a beautiful place, and there's a lot of springs around central Florida. And you go stand on the side, and here's this beautiful clear water that, that comes welling up continuously, fresh and clean and, and constant. Jesus is saying that those who come to him will have this flowing up inside of them. Now remember, this is taking place in a concrete setting, so, so she's still thinking in terms of the well and the water. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. All right, now it's about to get real. Now it's about to jump to another level. Now we're going to go beyond this, this, this right here conversation into something else. And here's how Jesus does it. Verse 16. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. Ah, uncomfortable moment. Just got awkward. Verse 17. I have no husband, she replied. Thinking that that's technically true. And it's safe because there's no way he knows the story. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Okay, awkward moment. Turns out Jesus knows more than she thought. So look where she goes with this. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, it got personal, it got close. Let's go back to the core argument. Now this is actually fascinating, what's taking place here. She says, you Jews say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but we say here on this mountain. What is she talking about? Okay, the deepest divide between the Samaritans and the Jews was in this concept of where the actual temple was supposed to be. And the claim of the Samaritans, if you read their literature, is that God intended the temple to be on Mount Gerizim, which is near Samaria. Now, why was that? Well, you've got to go all the way back to the Old Testament story of Joshua when he leads the people into the Promised Land. They are told, you are to go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And, all, and half the tribes will stand on Mount Gerizim and speak blessings, and the other half will stand on Mount Ebal and speak curses. And in the original context, they set up the tabernacle, according to the Samaritans, there at Mount Gerizim. And everything was the way it was supposed to be with the tabernacle there until the priest 
Eli came along. Remember Eli? He appears in the context of the story of Samuel. So according to the Samaritans, Eli was a priest of the tribe of, of, the, of the lineage of Ithamar. You remember that uh, there, were, there were sons of Aaron. There was Phinehas and Ithamar, and they were all high priests. And Eli was of the line of Ithamar, and there was another high priest by the name of Ozzi, who was of the line of Phinehas. And Ozzi was the high priest, and he was doing things right. And Eli was an underpriest, and he didn't do things right. And Ozzi got after him one day, and Eli got his feelings hurt. So he gathered up a whole bunch of people, and he moved to Shiloh and started a rival temple. Isn't that an interesting story? Now, that's not a Bible story. But that is the story that the Samaritans tell. And so their context, their argument for why the temple should be on Mount Gerizim is because that's where God appointed it when we first came into the land. So in this brief encounter that Jesus has had with this Samaritan woman, she has already touched on the key arguments of the separation of Jews and Gentiles. We say we're of the line of Jacob. You say we're not. We say we worship on, on this mountain where Joshua set it up. You say... Jerusalem. There's a lot you can learn from an interaction, isn't there? Sir, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now listen to Jesus' response. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So he just kind of says, yeah, there's an argument here. I respect your conviction, but you don't really know what you're talking about. But this whole argument will become irrelevant because the work that God is doing is so much more than whether there's a temple on this mountain or in Jerusalem because what I have come to bring, Jesus says, is the living water that will well up inside of everyone and you won't have to go to the mountain for it. You won't have to go to Jerusalem for it. It will be inside. She's taken aback by this. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now what's so remarkable about this is that this is the first time where Jesus literally comes right out and says, I am the Messiah. He doesn't say it to the Sanhedrin. He doesn't say it to the Pharisees. He doesn't even say it directly to the disciples. The first time he identifies himself, the first setting he finds himself in, where it's, 
it's actually useful for him to make this claim. Because anywhere else he makes this claim, they're going to they're say he's crazy. The first setting where he finds a person willing to believe him is at a well with a Samaritan woman with a rather questionable history. What does that say about Jesus? First of all, he's willing to reach out to anyone who will pay attention to him and listen. He doesn't care. His grace is sufficient. His desire and his love is for all. And anyone who is willing to listen and believe, he will reveal himself. The other disturbing thing that it says is sometimes the people he has the hardest time revealing himself to are those who claim to believe. You get a whole story about that in John 9, where he says, uh, the blind will receive sight and those who see will become blind. Maybe we'll deal with that in the weeks ahead. But here he is revealing himself to this woman in the context of this interaction that takes place at this well. Now, there's more to this story. And when we come back in February, we'll pick up the story from here and go on because amazing things happen in this story as it goes on. But I want to go back right now to this phrase that Jesus says in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so I gave a title today to this message, Getting Your Water from the Wrong Well. Now, obviously there's the physical water we need and we have to get it wherever we go. I had a glass of water this morning when I got up. I needed that. But that's not what I'm talking about. There is another thirst that we all have inside of us. Put in there put in our lives by God himself, when he created us in the beginning to be who we are, is this this longing for connection with the fountain of life. Maybe we'll say it that way since we're using this metaphor. Connected to the thing we most need. And unfortunately, because we've been separated from God by sin... That thing is missing in our lives. And it drives us. And we run around in our lives trying to find a source to fill that thirst. And too often, we choose the wrong things. We choose things that don't satisfy. We choose things that maybe in the moment entertain us, but, but don't build us up. Sometimes we choose things that tear us down. This is how people get caught in addictions. If you don't get what you need on the inside from the right well, it will destroy you. John chapter 7, verse 37, 
On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So, so we've even gone further here. Originally he says they will be like a fountain coming out. But now Jesus says anyone who believes rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, now look at verse 39. And this is key. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So what is the living water? To have this fountain of living water in you means that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. You remember in his conversation with Nicodemus, he said, unless you're, you're born of water and spirit... You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what he's talking about. This is the living water. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is the transformation of the inside of us as opposed to the decorating of the outside of us. What do I mean by that? When we get caught in in a a works-based life, then we will be hyper-focused on the outside. Even though on the inside, it's a desert. And what Jesus is saying is that's not worship in spirit and truth. That's not what we're going for. What we're going for is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes out in righteousness. A transformation of our lives from the inside out that begins with a whole turning over of our hearts to Jesus and then life according to the Spirit, the way he leads. Now watch what happens after he said this. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the Messiah, uh, is, is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others ask, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. Now, here's a challenge for you, particularly if you fancy yourself a person who makes rational choices based on facts. There's a phrase that Jesus says, and it appears multiple times in John, and it also appears in Revelation, and the phrase goes like this. He who has an ear, let him hear. What that phrase implies is that if your heart is open to the Spirit, truth is discernible in the hearing. And you see that in this story, in the fact that the temple guards are sent and they're told, arrest this man, and they go and they listen to him and they're like, yeah, I don't know. Nobody talks like this. This guy's different. If you're not understanding that Jesus is different, if you're not hearing things from God's word that challenge you at your core, that strike you at a conviction level of truth, then you're not hearing it in the spirit because the spirit will speak to your heart. If you're not hearing according to the spirit like the guards will, then you'll hear what happens in verse 47. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? 
Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Don't become so confident in what you know that you can no longer be moved by the Spirit of God. And don't put your confidence in the fact that, well, it looks like all the important people believe this way. And don't be so sure you know who the mob is. All of this brings us back to where we started today with the text that Vanessa read to us. Isaiah 55. And I really want to make two conclusions today. So this is the first one. Isaiah chapter 55. So Jesus has said to her, if you knew who it was that you were talking, you'd ask him for water, he would give you living water. He stands up at the, fe at the feast and says, all who believe Living water will flow from them like a river. He's using Old Testament language here. Isaiah 55, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. So I'm just going to pause right there. Are you thirsty? Now I'm not saying, you know, is your throat a little dry? My throat's a little dry. I could use a little drink about now. I'm not saying that. I'm saying on a soul level, has this life provided everything you know you need on that deep level? Or are you keenly aware that you're not enough, your spouse isn't enough, your job isn't enough, your entertainments aren't enough, line them all up, it's not enough. Are you thirsty on that core level? Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? What does that mean? That means why are you using all of your energy on things that will never satisfy? Why are you giving your best effort to that which doesn't matter? Why are you wasting who God has made you to be on things that don't last? Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you my faithful love promised to David. This is a reference to Jesus. The covenant that is established through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, that core reality that when we're convicted, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The promise that God has made to us through Jesus. He says, see, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you do not know, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Now, I want, the first way I want you to see that is to realize we are of the nations that have come running because of Jesus. Okay, I, Some of you may be Jewish, but I bet most of you aren't. You know what that makes you? Gentile. 
excluded from the covenant, outside of the people of God, until Jesus broke down the wall. And then you too were called. It was a mystery. The apostles had no idea that it was okay that we could be saved. They didn't know. But yet here we are, the nations of the world, and we gather into this house. We, We run here. Because here is where the name of Jesus is lifted up. So that's the first thing. We are fulfillment of this. But the second thing is there are people around us right now who when they understand will run here to be a part of the people of God. Verse 6. Here's how we become a fountain. You want to be this fountain that wells up? Here it is. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, And my thoughts than your thoughts. Now back to this water image. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and make it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God sends forth his word. He sent forth his word in Jesus. He sends forth his word in his word. He sends forth his word through the Holy Spirit, which speaks to our heart. And it's like water. You know, that's the thing about water. Water doesn't get consumed. It just serves its purpose. So does the word. It it comes through us and it transforms us. And what is the result? Verse 12. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. That's what happens when that fountain begins to come out of you. You go forth with joy and you're let out with peace. You find your joy in this world that God has given us. So that's the personal application. If you're thirsty, seek the Lord. Call on him. Forsake the wicked ways. He will make you into that fountain that flows. But you know what happens when you get a bunch of fountains together in the same place? Well, that's Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 47. And this is the conclusion for all of us. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. This is Ezekiel 47 verse 1. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling from the south side. It starts as a trickle. As the man went eastward, 
with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then he led me through the water that was ankle deep. So the water starts as a trickle from the throne of God. But you go out further, and, and suddenly it's, it covers your shoes. Verse 4, he measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water. Oh, now it's knee deep. Have you ever seen a stream like this? It starts out as a trickle, but, but then the further you go, it just keeps getting wider and deeper and more. He measured off another thousand and led me through the water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, that's the desert, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty waters there become fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. All right, what does it mean? The grace that comes to us from the throne of God starts as this trickle. And when it comes into our lives, it transforms us. And we each become fountains along the way. And the flow increases, and it increases, and it increases, and it increases, and it brings life everywhere it goes. When the people of God have been filled with the Holy Spirit, they have become these fountains. And they're all fed by the throne of grace, by the throne of God. And it comes to us. And, and when it comes to us, more comes. And we go out as a people doing good in the name of the Lord, making a difference for the name of the Lord. And this, what starts out as a tiny little helpless stream, gets bigger and bigger and bigger and brings life everywhere it goes. This is the church as Jesus imagines it. Filled not just with consumers of water, but producers and the net result on wherever we are located is a transformation so powerful. I don't know if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, but there's no fish in there. According to the imagery here, that just the result of this water flowing into the north end transforms it into pools of life. The point of it being, it doesn't matter where the church of God is located. If the people of God are filled with the Spirit... Life will result from their influence. But we can't be self-centered to be those kind of people. We can't be focused on ourselves. We have to be like the water that flows. So here's where we close it. If you're thirsty... Come to Jesus to drink. He will give you the Holy Spirit. And once you have received, you'll be transformed from the inside out. And when you've been transformed, you'll find joy and peace. And when you gather together with the rest who have been transformed, what starts as a trickle will become a shallow stream turn into a, a knee-deep torrent, eventually up to the waist, enough to wash you away, and, and finally, a river, a river of life.
God's expectation of what we can do and be does not seem to have limits, does it? Let's seek by His grace to fulfill the promise as He fills us with His Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we each become these fountains of life that when joined together becomes a river around which new life is born. The water of life that you give, Jesus, is powerful. You don't have to be a Jew to get it. You can be a Samaritan or a Gentile. We pray, Lord, that we will not hoard it to ourselves, but that we will become fountains of life. In Jesus' name, amen.